You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Today's teaching text comes from Philippians 3, 1 through 14. No confidence in the flesh. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever we were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my, Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Take a moment, if you will, just to become a aware of what you're feeling right now on the inside. It's unique for everybody. Pay attention, just um, are you feeling happy this morning, afraid, sad, you feel shame, you feel guilt, you feel lonely? Um, What is it that you're experiencing? And now with that, I want to encourage you just to give that over to the Lord. Father, we know that you are here. Help us to be here with you. Open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive this message. If there's anybody here today who really hungers and thirsts for you, Jesus, I I pray that they'll feel really well fed today. And if there's someone here who does not have an appetite for you, I pray that through your Holy Spirit you would create that appetite. I pray that if there's anybody here today who is not a Christian, who does not know you, Jesus, in a saving way, that would change. I ask you to do all these things for our good and your glory. To Christ, I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you're anything like me, but um, anytime like my kid has a birthday or I have a birthday, I, I get kind of nostalgic. I start looking back at old photos, um, and, and that began to happen this week as I thought about our church birthday. Uh, one of my uh, good friends, Rusty Langford, who was on staff here for a few years, uh, we sent him out to plant a church in East Tennessee, and he actually started sending me pictures this week. He kind of got the ball rolling, and most of them were really goofy, uh, really funny, and, and this one is no exception to the rule. I'll put it on the screen for you. Uh, that is me. Uh, 12 years ago, 
And uh, I think that pastor years are kind of like dog years and how you age. And so, um, but this is a screenshot from a video. It's a fundraising video that I was making because whenever you go to plant a church, you don't have any money. Like there's no members. And so like you've got to raise money for your salary and for ministry. And so I was uh, making this video. And, and as I was looking back at this, I was thinking about how passionate I was, how much zeal and energy I had. And then uh, later in the week, actually, Stephanie Kinder, she came up to me and she's like, Jared, I just heard one of your sermons from the cinema from like a year ago. Like you yelled the entire time. And, uh, and Brooke was like, oh, yeah, that's what I loved about Jared. That's what drew me to the church. He had so much energy and, and so much passion and so much zeal. And I, and I began to reflect on that picture. And I began to reflect on that time in my life. And I, and I started asking myself, like, what was it about that young man that said, I want to take a risk to plant a church? Like, like what was it about that guy that had so much passion and, and so much energy and, and just so much zeal? And the short answer is this, and this is the most honest answer that I think I can give you. The reason there was so much passion and energy behind that is because Jesus had radically transformed my life. And the reason that I wanted to plant specifically in this city is because I knew that despite the fact there was a church building on every single corner, that there were many people who were still religious and yet lost. I remember in the early days, and you can... um, you know, you can imagine, like, going around, you're getting to know people, and, and you're trying to find out, like, who has a church, who doesn't have a church, like, where do people stand with God? And I would ask this question, like, like, are you a Christian? And without fail, what do you think everybody in Paragol would say? Yes, I'm a Christian. But then I would ask this question, are you enjoying Jesus? And oftentimes I'd get a blank stare. Be like, well, I'm not really sure what you mean by that. And I think the reason that I would get that response is because, though there are many people in the city who claim to be a Christian, I think there are many people who actually have never really met the real resurrected Jesus. There are people in the city who even right now are settling for an imitation, a counterfeit version of Jesus, where he is either distant, angry, boring, weak, or all of the above. And one of the reasons this tugs at my heart so much is because this was me growing up. I grew up in the church. My dad was a pastor, which means I was there whether I wanted to be or not. Fever, no fever, like homework, no homework, like no matter what. Like I was there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And so I grew up hearing all about Jesus. And what I tell people, and you've heard me say it before, I never doubted that Jesus could save me. I just didn't think he could satisfy me. And because of that, I never fully surrendered my life to him, not until I was 21 years old. And as I began to talk with other people in the city, people who claimed to be people of faith, I began to quickly realize that this problem I had wasn't just a Jared problem. Like, this was a Paragold problem. Like, there are many people right now in the city who are just completely uninterested in Jesus because they have settled for a version of him that is not the version that we see right here in the Scriptures. And therefore, man, because of this, I remember sitting in my dorm room in Louisville, Kentucky in 2008, and I was convinced from God. There's like three, maybe four times, like I really heard God speak to me in almost what was an audible voice. And this is one of those instances where God told me, like, Jared, I want you to help create, help cultivate a community that will be devoted to knowing the real Jesus and making him known to every man, woman, and child. And so with that in mind, here's what I want to do today. I want to look back at Philippians 3. And rather than using our 11th birthday to cast fresh vision and to tell you about all of these things that as pastors and elders that we plan to do in the next year, I just want to talk about my first love. I just want to show you and point to you my friend, Jesus. 
who has, in fact, over and over proven to be not just my salvation, but also my satisfaction. And so if you look with me in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing from a prison cell. He's facing imminent death because he won't stop preaching the gospel. And here's what he says in Philippians 3, starting in verse 1. He says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, if you want to sum up the entire book of Philippians, that's it in one sentence. Rejoice in the Lord. Over and over through Philippians, all he wants you to see is that true joy, real joy, is found in the real Jesus. Like, if you want unshakable joy, real joy, it's found not in your circumstances, it's found in Christ. You know, one of the foundational verses this church was built on was out of Acts chapter 8, where it says that Philip went down to Samaria, and he proclaimed to them the gospel. They believed the gospel, and quote, it says, as a result, there was much joy in the city. How can you know if the real Jesus has come to town? There's joy. Like, how can you know if you've met the real Jesus? How can you know if a church actually is centered around the real Jesus? It's a happy church. People smile. They actually like their life. Now, it doesn't mean there's not sad moments. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean we don't have a heartache. But beneath it all is a rock-solid joy that cannot be taken away. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, here he is riding from prison, rejoice in the Lord. That's actually a command, by the way. Like, that's a choice. You have a choice today. If you're like, I'm not happy, you can choose to be in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard to you. Verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Verse 3. For it is we who are the circumcision who serve God by His Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what Paul just said. There are some people who want to mark their faith in God by what they do for God. In other words, there are people who are basically believing that their relationship with God hinges not on God's work, but primarily on their work. People who believe that salvation is earned or it is deserved because we live these spiritually impressive lives. And what Paul says is you need to look out for those kind of people. You need to watch out for them. He says, these are dogs, these are evildoers, these are people that if you believe their teachings, if you read their tracks, like they will lead you out of life and into death. Paul then says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for such confidence, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul here is just being a little bit cheeky. He's actually about to engage in this spiritual smack talk. He's going to say, hey, like spiritually speaking, if you think you're awesome, like I'm awesomer. Like I'm better than you are. Like I'm more moral than you. I have a more spiritually impressive life than you. My spiritual resume is better than your resume. And then look what he says in verse 5 and verse 6. He said, I was circumcised on the eighth day, which apparently was something to brag about back then. Of the people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin. He's like, man, I'm not just an Israelite. I'm a true Israelite. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Why does that matter? Because the tribe of Benjamin was the very first tribe that gave Israel their very first king. And does anybody remember Israel's first king, class? Saul. And what Paul, who's writing this, what was his name before it was converted to Paul? Saul. 
Right? He's like, man, like I'm as Israelite as they get, man. Like I am a true bread. Like, like that's who I am. Then he says, I'm the Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? He's like, I'm not just a Greek-speaking Jew, like some of you second-class Jews. Like, I actually speak the mother tongue. Like, I can read the Bible in its own language. I can actually speak the language of Hebrew. And in regard to the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. Now, we look at Pharisees, like, in a, in a negative light. But in, in this day, remember, like, they were the ones who would uphold the law of God. They were the ones who were taking back the country for God. As for zeal, persecuting the church, he said, man, I was so in love with this mission that I believe God sent me on that I was willing to kill in order to do what I felt like God had called me to do. I was more passionate, more zealous than anybody you would ever meet. As to righteousness based on the law, faultless. Now, we know that, and let Paul talk about this later, we know that he was a sinner. But he said, at least on the outside, there was nothing you could look at in my life and say there's something wrong with that guy. Like, I look perfect on the outside. And so if you take this list and you just kind of move it into modern times, what is Paul saying here? He's saying, look, I grew up in a Christian family. Like, I never missed a Sunday gathering, not even during COVID. Like, I didn't settle for the online option. Like, I showed up. I wore the mask, man. I read theology books. I loved it. I, I took, like, all these notes in Wayne Grudem's systematic theology class. Like, like I studied the original language. Like, I'm a conservative. Like, I'm the one who's fronting lines on putting prayer back in school. I uh, passionately would oppose things like abortion or, or gay marriage. And not only that, like, overall, I was a good dude. Like, I was a man of integrity. But then look at what he says next. Because after giving this list of spiritual accomplishments, he's basically going to look and say... Who cares? Who cares? Because look at what he says in verse 7. Whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for, though, for whose sake I have lost all things. And Paul, by the way, because of following Jesus, lost all things. That's not hyperbole. I consider them, though, garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, the word that Paul uses here for garbage in verse 8 is actually an explicit word in the New Testament. It's the Greek word skubalon, which can be translated as dung, as filth, as waste, or as garbage. And what Paul is doing here is he's intentionally using the most offensive and the most shocking word imaginable for what purpose? To describe the life of someone who does a whole bunch of good stuff but yet does not have a relationship with Jesus. He's saying, look, you can be a morally conservative person who votes for all the right things. You can be a good moral guy or a good moral girl who reads your Bible daily and gives to the church and does lots of great things and accomplishes a lot of amazing stuff. But if you do not have Jesus, you have nothing. Nothing. In the opening lines of Michael Horton's book, Christless Christianity, he writes, What would things look like if Satan really took control of the city? Think about that for a second. What would things look like if Satan really took control of the city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his own scenario in his weekly sermon that was also broadcast nationwide in CBS radio. Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, which is the city where he pastored, 
Here's what he says would happen. Ready for this? All of the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You know what's so scary to me about that? It's because what Barnhouse describes is what most people, I believe, want for themselves and for their kids. Jesus or no Jesus, I just want polite little kids that will obey. I just want them to make good grades and work hard and live respectable lives. Like I just, I want kids that, that don't do drugs and say no to homosexuality and anything else that would embarrass our family name. Like we just want to raise good little boys and good little girls who eventually get a nice school, land a nice job, marry a nice person, and have nice middle class lives. And those all may be well wishes, but what Paul is saying here is, listen, that your kid can have all of that. Your kid can be straight-laced, highly educated, a moral human being, but even if they go pro or get a D1 scholarship or land a six-figure job or end up being respected in the eyes of everyone else, if they have all of that and still don't have Jesus, you know what's going to happen? They're going to come to the end of their life and put all of their trophies and all of their accomplishments into a box and going to have to write on the outside of it in big, bold letters, wasted. Scubalon. Like, that's what Paul is saying. I was talking with a man at the gym this past week who was telling me about his son who claims to be a gay atheist, which is becoming more and more common, by the way. And obviously this man was concerned about his son, and, and, and he was just talking about how like, even he feels embarrassed to go to the church now because it's just kind of the way he's known, and his son definitely doesn't want to be involved in the church. And here's just what I said to encourage that, that dad. I said, I just want you to know this. Your son is no more lost than the straight kid with straight A's who attends the youth group every single week, every single Wednesday. He makes his parents proud, and yet he doesn't know Jesus. And if that offends you, it's because you don't understand the scandalous message of the gospel. Paul says in verse 9, you want to know how you go from being lost to being found? Here's what he says. Look at verse 9 yourself. We are found in Christ. How? Not because of our own righteousness, but because of his righteousness. We are found in Christ. We are saved. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. We are made right with God, not because we're amazing people. That's not how this works. But because, as Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we may become the righteousness of Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. This is at the cross. He says, Jesus took our death so we get his life. He took our sins so that we get his righteousness, which means if you are trusting in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 14, right now where you sit, you look perfect in the eyes of God. No matter how bad you blew it this week, Jesus is still in love with you. As it says in Zephaniah, he rejoices over you with singing. What? Because what is true of Jesus, when you trust in him, becomes true of you right now, no matter who you are or what you have done, you are in Christ, love perfectly and completely, and there's nothing that can ever, ever, ever change that. And because the devil knows this is true, because he knows that this, believing this, is the key to a vibrant spiritual life, because he knows, as Jesus says in John 15, that if you will just simply abide in his love, you will bear much fruit. He's going to spend his life trying to convince you that there's something that's not true about what I just said. 
And he will constantly try to come to you and convince you that actually, no, God does not love you. David Seaman says it like this. He says that Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut-level feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. This feeling shackles many Christians in spite of wonderful spiritual experiences and knowledge of God's word. Although they understand their position as sons and daughters of God, they are tied up in knots, bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority, and chained to a deep sense of worthlessness. Maybe someone in this room today, you've heard a voice this week that says this. You're worthless. You need to know today, that's not the voice of Jesus. Some of you have heard a voice this week that says, you're disgusting. You're unlovable. You're a lost cause. Your best days are behind you. That is not the voice of Jesus. That is the voice of the enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And guys, you've got to begin to recognize the difference. I'm convinced that we are, 99.9% of the stuff that we're listening to in our head is coming from the enemy. That's what it's coming from. We're not listening. We, we, we don't even know how to hear the voice of the Lord anymore. And, and listen, this is so subtle. Let me, let me tell you how this works. Just even this past week, and I shared this with our unwanted group. Uh, we have 28 men, by the way, meeting every Tuesday morning uh, to work through sexual brokenness. Isn't that amazing? 28 men every Tuesday. And I shared this with them. Here's how subtle this is. Earlier this week, I got on Facebook, and uh, a good friend of mine, Aaron, who's a pastor at St. John's Lutheran, he, and we're actually so, uh, coaching soccer together this year, he posted a picture where his church threw him a 10-year anniversary party. He'd been in the church 10 years, so they had this big cake, a big blow-up party, and I got on there and I commented like, oh man, well-deserved, great job, but then now here's the thought that came to my mind. The crossing didn't throw you a 10-year, <laughs> and, you, and you planted that church. And then, from seemingly out of nowhere, here was the message. Because you're not a very good pastor. Because you don't preach that good, or you don't love that well, or you don't work as many hours as he does. Like, great, you work 45, 50 hours a week. Try 60 hours a week. Like, that would get you what you need. And here's what I've learned. If I, if I and in the past I could have done this, I could have begun to mistaken that for the voice of the Lord. Because, hey, is pastoral ministry a good thing? Is working hard a good thing? Is loving people a good thing? Yes. But that's what the enemy does. He jumps on something that's good, but then he perverts it. And he does so in such a way that it actually ends up causing division between you and your spouse, or it just burns you out, or whatever it may be. And listen, like I was like, that, that is just one example of what I think the enemy is doing every single minute of every single day. Some of you, listen... The reason you don't want to spend time with Jesus is because you think that every time you go spend time with him, he's just going to condemn you. That he's just going to tell you all of the things that you've done wrong, all of the ways that you failed, how big of a disappointment you are, and then he's going to give you another laundry list and say, now go do these things and try to earn my love. Like, who would want to hang out with someone like that? Like, imagine, like, if I talked to you and I was like, hey, young man, tell me about your relationship with your dad. What have y'all talked about recently? And he's like, oh, every time I talk to my dad, he's just telling me all the ways that I fail and all the ways I need to improve and all the stuff I... No one, you would look, anybody would look at me like, what a terrible father. And yet some of us think that's the way God is. And I know that because when I ask some of you, hey, tell me about the conversations you've had with God recently, usually it's something about God's telling you something you've done wrong and you need to do better. Rarely do I, when I ask someone, tell me about your conversation with Jesus, do I hear him say, oh, he just told me how much he loves me. When is the last time Jesus said that he loves you? When is the last time you heard that from him? Because I'll tell you this, he's saying it every single day. 
over and over and over. Paul says, it was Valerie quoted it in the video, Romans 8.1. Listen, if you are in Christ, Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. None. None. Jesus is taking your punishment on your behalf. And so no matter what you did today or what you do tomorrow, what you did yesterday, God, listen, he will never, ever condemn you. Now, he'll convict you, but conviction is way different than condemnation. Conviction, listen, how do you know if it's conviction? It always is going to feel like love and lead into life. It's always going to be the kid out in the road and the parent that goes to him and says, Son, i got to pull you out of the road because I want you to live. Come here, we've got to go this way. That's what it's going to feel like. Not, what an idiot. How could you? You call yourself a Christian. That is the voice of the enemy. Jesus always, his voice sounds like love and leads into life. And because Paul knows this is true, look what he says in verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ. Let's talk about intimacy. I don't want to just know about him. I want to know him. And what's so crazy to me is, remember who's saying this? This is a guy who has lost every worldly and material possession because of Jesus. Jesus has done nothing to advance this guy's career. Nothing. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been thrown into prison. His life has gotten significantly worse as a result of following Jesus. But here he says, I want to know Christ no matter what. I just want to ask you today, like, do you know Jesus in this way? Some of you... Some of you here today, like, you see Jesus as nothing more than a ticket to get you out of hell. The Bible talks about him as a treasure chest. It's worth giving up everything in order to have. He is the treasure. Heaven's not the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. Heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. I think of Paul's words in Psalm 63. He says, your love, O Lord, is better than life. David had a lot of life experiences. He had a lot of money, a lot of fame. He, like, killed giants, right? He wrestled lions and bears with his bare hand. They could talk about that, you know, with the guys. I mean, he had a lot of sex. And he's like, yep, I'm telling you, God's love, better than all of that. Better than all of that. Augustine, the great theologian, who used to be an absolute womanizer, said this, How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true sovereign joy, you drove them from me and you took their place. Oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. Brother Lawrence, who was a monk, wrote the book Practicing the Presence of God. He said this, I've had such charming and delicious thoughts about God, I'm ashamed to mention them. I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But here's the point. When you meet Jesus... The real Jesus, guys, please hear me. I promise you, you're not going to be content with the amount of him that you get. You're not going to be saying, what's the least amount of time I can spend with Jesus and still go to heaven? No, you want more of him. Paul was so enamored with Jesus, he said, I want to know Christ. And look at this, he goes on, yes, the power of his resurrection. And I want to participate in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. What is Paul getting at here? Well, he's getting at the reality that if you're a disciple of Jesus, you not only want to be with Jesus, you want to become like Jesus. And what Paul understood is something we have to understand today, and it's this. In order for us to become like Jesus, we have to suffer. We have to suffer. We have to go through pain. We have to go through disappointment. We have to experience a daily death, a picking up of a cross that leads to one massive life in Christ. You cannot have resurrection apart from death. And I know that, man, like for some of you, your suffering seems so pointless 
and so random and completely unnecessary, but according to, to Paul and the writers of the New Testament, your suffering is being used by God. He doesn't necessarily cause the suffering, but he's using every single bit of it to form you more into the image of Jesus and therefore your true and better self. Earlier this week, I, I, um, I called a man who is dying. He's on hospice, and I was going to go by to see him, and, and um, another woman picked up, and he was unconscious, and so she's like, still go ahead and pray for him, and so I prayed over speakerphone, and after it was, after I finished praying, uh, she said, hey, this, there's a guy here from hospice that wants to talk to you, and I was like, okay, and so uh, it was Don Martin, my old teacher from college, Megan had a class with, uh, with him as well. Uh, Don is a man who's gone through a lot of suffering. His son actually died, I think, his senior year of a motorcycle accident, and uh, here's the thing about Don. Don's an awesome man. Like, he's a follower of Jesus. He's also a pastor. And what I've realized about Don is because he continued to trust Christ in his suffering, there is a softness and a depth to him that is noticeable. I mean, Don is the kind of guy who is calm. He's encouraging. The reason he wanted to get on the phone, by the way, is to tell me how big of an impact I'm having for Jesus. I haven't talked to him since college. So he just wanted to get on and encourage me. That's all he wanted to do. This guy's an encourager. It's almost like he sees the world in color. He appreciates small things and lives with more gratitude than almost anybody else I know. And Paul understands, listen, this is what suffering can do for you. And so he says, I want to know Jesus, and I want to become like Jesus, and I know that suffering is all a part of that. And then look at what he says uh, next. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, the power of his resurrection. I'm going to participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, you know what? I don't fear suffering, and I don't fear death, because all it can do is make me better. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Just as Jesus experienced a death, burial, and resurrection, I too will experience a death, burial, and resurrection one day in this kind of miraculous, <clears throat> excuse me, cosmic act of recreation and resurrection. I'm going to be molded perfectly into the image of God. And I'm going to be free from sickness. And I'm going to be free from pain. This past week, I've had this dang head cold. And one day I woke up and my back was hurting. And all I did was sleep. I don't even understand why it was hurting. I still struggle with some of the same sins over and over and over. And one day, all of that is going to be done with. All sad things will come untrue. If you're here today listening, you know Jesus, the same is true for you. This is your long-term plan. Like, this is your future. No matter what your story may look like now, in the end, there is an empty tomb and a brand new creation and a living God that we will just enjoy the overflow of his perfections forever. And then look at what Paul says next, and we'll end here in verse 12. He says, Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards to what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. There's a lot in there, but essentially what Paul is saying here is something that we have been saying since the inception of our church. I'm going to say it again. It is okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to want to stay there. It's okay to not be okay, as people were talking about in these videos. See, because Paul gets the gospel, because he knows his identity and his self-worth is rooted not in his performance, but in the performance of Christ, he's honest about the fact that, hey, I'm not perfect. He says it right here. Not that I've already obtained this. In other words, I've not arrived. I've not whipped all of my sins. He goes on in, in 1 Timothy and says, I'm the chief of all sinners. Not I was the chief of all sinners. I am. I'm the biggest sinner in the room. He says in Romans 7, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Keep in mind that's coming from the single greatest missionary next to Jesus Christ. The greatest church planner of all time. An apostle for Christ's sake. 
And yet, after all he has done, he says, I still haven't arrived. I'm still a work in progress. And the reason this matters so much is because, as Brendan Manning says, the church is never meant to be a museum for saints, but a hospital bed for sinners. Do you remember the 1966 classic, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Anybody seen that? It's about to be coming on again. can't believe that Christmas is almost here. You can leave this picture on the screen. I, um, it's, a, it's a heroic quest of Rudolph and his friend who are banished from the North Pole. And they go on this adventure. They try to discover who they are and where they belong. And they experience some danger, right? Think of the abominable snowman. But they also meet some friends along the way. Think of Yukon, Cornelius. Remember Yukon, right? And his sled team of pet-looking dogs. And one of my favorite scenes, you see it on the screen right here. One of my favorite scenes takes place on the island of Misfit Toys, which is basically this home of imperfect, unwanted toys such as the squared-wheeled train or the little, you know, water gun that actually ends up squirting jelly instead. And when I think about this scene, guys, listen, I think that's a picture of a church. Like, that's the crossing church right there. The crossing church is an island of misfits. And we just need to call it what it is. There are no perfect people here. We are all a bunch of imperfect people who are standing in need of one perfect person together. And that's certainly not me, and it's not you, but it is Jesus Christ. And the first step to be a member of this church, and to be a Christian for that sake, is just to be able to admit that. It's okay to not be okay. But it is not okay to want to stay there. Paul says, I'm straining towards to what is ahead. I am pressing on towards the goal. That word pressing, is a, it's a hunting word. It means activity and pursuit and effort. As Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, but it is not opposed to effort. The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament, and so do the other writers, that salvation, it cannot be earned. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But here's the thing, if you've encountered grace, grace works. Grace moves. Grace matures us. And so Paul says, look, I'm not perfect. But I am making progress. I am continuing to stumble together forward towards Jesus and the life that he has called me to live. And so with that in mind, as the pastors of this church, as we think about the past 11 years and we look toward to the next 11 years, we want to continually to be a place where it's okay to not be okay, as we talked about in this video, but not okay to want to stay there. Like my heart is that each of you will grow and mature and move forward in Christ's likeness. Which means that my hope, and our hope as pastors, is that you will keep showing up to the Sunday gathering, even though more and more people are not showing up to the Sunday gathering. Show up. Trust that, that, that man, there's something that is unique that happens in this room when we all come together and sing praises to God. Just remember, this life is not about me. It's not about my glory. It's about His glory. When we sit under the teaching of the Word, you realize that God has given specific pastors specific words for their people. This word, I believe today, was not for someone in Jonesboro. It was not for someone in Texas. Like, this was for you. For you. God wants you to hear this message. Keep showing up and taking this and, and receive communion, fellowship. Sign up for things like the unwanted group. If you're struggling with sexual brokenness, like, go to bed an hour earlier so you can wake up an hour early and be a part of groups like that. Be a part of overcomers. We have like 100 people show up for overcomers here in our building on Monday nights to deal with addiction. Get involved in things like Band of Brothers, which is where I pour in to, to a group of men and try to help them grow as, as men of God, or the Sisterhood, which is our women's ministry. Plug into a DNA, which is the place where you can be fully known, belong, and be loved. Get involved in a missional community. 
Share that common meal that Marlon and Melinda were talking about. Dive deeper into the sermons, through these discussions. Serve somewhere in the church on Sunday mornings. If you're not serving this family in subcapacity, please do so. There's a lot of places that you can serve. And I just want to tell you, like, if you don't have an output, if you're not serving, like, if you're not giving your faith away in some way, I'm telling you, your faith will shrivel up. Like, it will. Like, don't just serve and don't just give because it's for our good, but it's also for your growth. Take responsibility for your spiritual development. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Read the Bible daily. Pray. Practice silence and solitude and fasting and all these time-tested practices that help us to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit to experience more of God's love. And if you're here and you're like, man, that sounds like a lot, Jared. I agree it is. It does sound like a lot. It does sound like a lot. But I truly believe that Christ is worth it. I believe it more now than ever. I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to. I talked to a guy this past week that said um, that he made it to the top of his career, a guy here in our town. Made it to the top of his career. He's the best of the best. He came out of poverty. and He's like, I just don't want to be poor like my family. And, and now he makes a ton of money. And he says, it's just so empty. I was actually happier when I was poorer than I am. I mean, I, we, I see it all over the place where people are so disenchanted with their lives and the American dream. It does not work. Christ is the answer. And my hope is that we will see, man, like that, that yeah, there's a loss to this thing, following Jesus, but there's so much more of a reward. In light of that, like, here's, here's what I want to say. And I share this every single year, and I'm going to keep sharing it every single year because it's the best way I know how to talk about our church. I'll say this and be done. There are four different types of churches you can be a part of, and I use Mount Everest as an example of this. There are churches that I would say are what I would call a high-invite, you see it on the screen, low-cost church. That means they're really, 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 really good at pulling off a Sunday gathering. Great music, great preaching, great graphics, great kids' ministry. It's a lot of fun. And it's a place where you can kind of slip you know, beneath the cracks. There's not going to be any accountability. You're not going to be asked to kind of really truly to follow after Jesus and to practice the way of Jesus. It's a high invite, low cost church. And I'd say this church is like watching a movie about Mount Everest on the IMAX movie screen. And this is pretty cool, right? You walk away like, this is cool. This is cool. There are churches that are like that out there. There's also churches that I would say are low invite, low cost churches. That means they're not very cool. They're pretty boring, right? Maybe it's a little rural country church. I don't know. I don't even have a band, right? They're still like banging away on the piano, the Heavenly Highway hymns, or or whatever else it may be, right? Not a very cool church, not a very impressive church, but also a church where they're not asking anything of you. And I would say this is a church that's like Googling images of Mount Everest. It doesn't really excite you. You're not going to write home to your friends about it, but there's no cost to it either, so you just kind of keep doing it mindlessly, right? This is a boring church. Then there's a church that I would say is a high-cost, low-invite church. And this is a church that expects a lot from their people. Serve, 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 do, do, do. And it's completely void of Christ and his mission. It's like you're just busy doing a bunch of stuff. And you're like, I don't have any idea how this in any way helps advance the kingdom of God. This church is like doing a thousand-page research paper on the geological matchings of Mount Everest. And honestly, these churches just suck. Okay? They're just, they literally, literally suck the life out of you. That's what I mean by that. And then there's another option, and this is the option that we're seeking to be, and we believe it's the option Christ has called us to be. It's a high-invite, high-cost church. There's accountability in this church, guys. We truly care about your soul. We truly want to see you grow to maturity in Christ. It is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to want to stay there. And so to be a part of this church, like it will at times feel like climbing Mount Everest. 
There's going to be sacrifice. There's going to be, need to be teamwork. There's going to be some hardship. There's going to be times where you're like, I don't know if I can take a step further. I'm just going to need to sit here for a while. I'm going to need someone maybe to kind of pull me up. And there's going to be times you're going to need to pull others up. But in the end, though there's sacrifice and there's hardship, we believe that 100%, if we will continue on this path with Jesus as our Sherpa, that we will come to the end of our lives and feel like, man, truly, that wasn't perfect, but that was absolutely worth it. That's what we want to call you to. And here's my commitment to you as a pastor and as a pastor of this church. Like, wherever you are in that journey and your climb, some of you feel like, man, I've been doing this thing for a while. I'm, like, I'm pretty much at the top. Awesome. We'll meet you there. Some of you are like, I'm in the middle. Great, we'll meet you there. Some of you are like, I still feel like I'm drunk down at base camp. Like, I can't even roll out of bed, right? Like, I'm barely able to get one foot in front of another. Listen, we will meet you there. As long as you want to go on the journey. Like, man, we are committed to meeting you in that space. And if you're like, why would I do that? Because, again, Jesus tells us in the gospel, he tells us, man, that if you want to be my disciple, you must pick up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to keep their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jesus, I'm telling you guys, truly is the salvation and the satisfaction that you are longing for. Let's go all in on it. Let's go all in. I'm going to invite our band to come forward. And as we do, I'm going to invite you to pray just for a moment. And after I pray, we'll actually enter into a time of communion. So if the communion servers want to go ahead and come forward, they can do that at this time. But while the elements are being prepared and the band is, is getting ready to lead us in one final song, I just want to encourage you to take a moment of evaluation and just ask, Jesus, what do you want to say to me right now? And a lot of this word and a lot of this message. Jesus, what do you want me to hear? Maybe for some of you today, you're going to hear him say, I want you to, to, to surrender to my love for the first time. That means that for you, maybe today is a day of salvation, that you've never fully given your life to Christ. You've never fully trusted him with everything that you have. You're still relying on your own good works still relying on your own performance. Maybe for others today, Jesus just wants you to, to have your eyes open to who he really is, to see him as beautiful. That's truly the salvation and the satisfaction. Maybe for others, it's just to, to reignite in you a passion, to remind you of your first love, of why you got into this thing, to remind you of how excited you were when you first begin to follow Jesus, remind you of how excited you were when you first joined a church and you got to partner with him in the mission of making the real Jesus known. Maybe for some of you, you need to hear it today. You are forgiven. You are not defined by the things that you have done or have not done. Father, I thank you so much for giving us your word, for giving us your son, Jesus. I pray, God, would you please open our eyes to see you as you really are today. I pray that as a result of your love, not to earn your love, but from a place of love, that we would extend that love to one another and to people in our city over and over again. I pray that as we take this communion right now, that we would also, Father, in a tangible way, remember this gospel in a way that transforms us from the inside out. It's in Christ's name that I ask these things. Amen.